violence per se has never been my bag, except personally. But in pictures, as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on screen as it is. I failed, and I've succeeded. And, uh, but all those pictures you talk about basically are morality plays. I've broken a lot of fences and noses. I just do the uh, best kind of a job I know how. And, uh, but there are certain people who are filmmakers, and there are certain people who are not. That's all. Hey, welcome. It's the good, the pod, the ugly uh, podcast you might like. Uh, this is your host, Thomas. And I'm the co-host, Ken. And uh, this is the season finale of season 10. And the season last X. episode of last episode of, of 2023. Damn. Uh, we're going to have a big old party here. And nothing says party like, um, well, Warren, Warren Beatty. You know the the char- charming Ashuk's sexy philandering actor director rapper rapper. <laughs> we won't get to Bullworth today necessarily, uh, but yeah, why not go out with a bag with Beatty? So, what has uh, season X been about, Thomas? Tell us. Well, it's been about too long, especially between episodes <laughs> coming out. Uh, but season X, we've looked at movies directed by people who, uh, typically are not directors. So, you know, often that's actors. We started off with Ben Affleck. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does venture into other territories like musicians. We did Prince and David Byrd Mm -hmm. and makeup effects. We did Tom Savini. Uh, and so, yeah, we've uh, covered, I, I, you know, I, I had a count for this and my dyslexia kicked in and I wanted to say 16 movies, but we might have actually had more than that that we've covered so far. Are you counting right now? We've covered 26 it's movies, <laughs> including the two today. It's 30. It's 30. no. Oh, OK. Because I forgot yeah, about the, the ones that I'm not on, plus the two today. Yeah, the Richard the Richard Price, which he technically didn't direct an episode, but we talked about that last week with Eric. Uh, he was a writer. Um, yeah, it's been. Uh, I was looking back at my letterbox, and you can follow me on Letterbox under Ken Coral. Please do. Um, I have a list of all the movies I watch for the podcast this year, and prior to that, you know, we had Meryl Streep. We had our four by four. Um, just the variety of films and general experiences we've had this season has been um, fairly phenomenal. We've gone into a lot of different corners of the film universe. It's been fun, but it's also been a little exhausting. Yeah, and there's a lot of dust bunnies in those corners and like weird pet and spouse hair. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, today we're going to talk Warren Beatty. Uh, stay tuned for the end of the show or skip ahead if you want to listen to us talk about Warren Beatty's two uh, the two films Shampoo and Dick Tracy mm-hmm. or as we call, uh, for short we'll just call this episode Dick Shampoo I think uh-huh. we'll because uh, we'll have our awards at the end for those yes. 30 movies we have season 10 awards chosen by you our listener 
Yeah, our so, listener, you you are our academy. So yes. thank you, listener. Yeah. Uh, thank you for voting. And uh, your voice was definitely heard. Uh, mm-hmm. And will be heard at the end of the show. Yeah. Um, loud and clear. I mean, we kind of, it wasn't loud and clear when you were telling us to shut up or when you're doing your fats impersonation, but. Or your mumbles. Or mumbles. Yeah. Mumbles was here before the show. Mumbles yeah. from Dick Tracy. Yeah. He had to jump off right before we started recording. Um, he, he will probably not come back. <laughs> Damn it. That's a No mumbles. No mumbles. Yeah, it was a toss-up between Warren Beatty and Tom Green, and <laughs> I I know Warren Beatty as Shirley MacLaine's uh, sibling, right? Like, hottie Shirley MacLaine, sex symbol <laughs> Shirley MacLaine, uh-huh. her, her, like, brother or something. Um, was, but uh, I think he always had a certain cachet. Growing up, uh, when I did, um, so that like Dick Tracy seemed like it was going to be this giant event. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit more uh, for our second film. Uh, but it seemed to me growing up that he was like a Clint Eastwood figure. Like he was just like larger than life, constantly making movies, constantly uh, changing like popular cinema. And I don't think that's actually the case. I think I, no. I think I was just caught in a bubble. No, I, I totally agree about Warren Beatty and growing up when I did. I'm a, I'm a little older than you, but he really had um, the sense about him because there was the part of him, obviously the public part. He was he's a very private guy, but the public part is he dated a shit ton of famous ladies, um, including ladies from both the movies we'll be talking about today. Um, and he his all his movies had that kind of feeling of something. Uh, important like it's a a capital c cinema movie even if it's a comedy like heaven can wait he always had the he worked with some of the best writers uh the films he directed some of the best cinematographers um but you're right the the deeper you look there might be less there than the public image would have us think yeah and so that's um i mean i think that that looking back might have been because it seemed like he wrote a, he wrote a bit on the coattails of new cinema, mm-hmm. and it's uh, he is a tricky figure because you're not quite sure how influ- he, it's hard to know what his thumbprint actually is as a director or as a creator. Mm-hmm. Um, but he definitely put it that thumb, uh, whether or not it had prints on it, whether or not it got shaved off like in seven, um, on the scales for things like. Bonnie and Clyde in Shampoo, mm-hmm. where a lot of those decisions are being made by your producer, which is what he was on those, uh, and also your main star. Yeah. And then he also, the older he got, the reputation he got for his directing style, which aired more on the Kubrick side of, of things um, without the same result. Well, definitely the over budget portion of it. Yeah, he liked to do a lot of takes as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, But so uh, Beatty was somebody who uh, I had once uh, lobbied that we could do an entire season about. Um, And then the the first movie we're talking about, the the shampoo, not the shampoo, just shampoo, 
how Ashby was another one that uh, I thought would be a good subject for a season. So um, I do think Beatty is, I watched a bunch more of his movies than we're talking about, and I think he's fascinating. Um, but after watching Dick Tracy, I'm kind of done watching him for a while. So I'm glad that. Yeah. And unfortunately, as we'll talk about in a moment, how Ashby didn't have a very deep filmography. No. And it kind of went off the rails there toward the end. Um, spectacularly. 8 million ways to die. Have you ever seen it? No, you have to watch it. Oh my God. Um, Anyway, well, let's talk well, about eight, well, be, would it be eight million and one at that point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I mean, we'll we'll talk maybe a little bit Bullworth and Reds here in a bit, both. But for the today, Dick Shampoo. Yeah, both have a lost earring that's found. Whoa! Right. Mm-hmm. Beatty is torn between multiple women, not literally. Uh, he's not ripped in, in parts like mother or something. He's, uh, spoilers. Oh, sorry. <laughs> For next season. Uh, Beatty proposes marriage yeah. in both movies. Someone brings along a champagne glass and a bottle with them as they, uh, as they enter a scene, that being Madonna and the, um, the cocked rich dude. Uh, as he leaves the uh, nineteen sixty eight election to get in the car with the with the hippies, Jack um, yeah, uh, both have women in backless dresses. Mm-hmm. Both have dicks, Dick Tracy and Nixon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, both have steam rooms. Wow. What? Yeah, and somebody breaks a window to get to Beatty. That being the kid. Uh, both descriptor and name and uh dick tracy uh and that chair uh going through the boathouse window or wherever that is the uh and shampoo yeah goldie hahn so, no not goldie hahn it's julie it's wait who no, is he? it was goldie no, hahn yeah it's goldie hahn okay. who finds him okay yeah okay so shampoo 1975 the year of Iger sanction and jaws Good year. Yeah. So, Your first time watching this film, Ken? No, I saw it. Um, I think it might be the second time. I, I think I saw it in the late 80s, early 90s when I was getting into movies. Um, and that was like a, a mid-70s uh, new Hollywood cinema movie that you had to watch. Oh, yeah. And then your 10th one was free? Uh-huh. Yeah. Then I, I got a free one. Oh, Which cool. uh, turned out to be New York, New York by Martin Scorsese, so I got ripped Ooh. off. But you get the long goodbye in there ahead of it, so that's good. Uh-huh. Um, this is my second viewing as well. I watched this because I wanted to watch more Hal Ashby. Uh, I said to myself, well, Harold of Mods, one of your favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I would you watch more. Uh, and I think I watched Being There and then this, and then I stopped. Okay, but that's... I- not a bad trilogy of movies. I'm gonna watch. <laughs> I'm gonna watch the landlord soon. Uh, okay. But and if you if you want to have a bad movie night and watch Eight Million Ways to Die with me, I, I will be there. Okay. All right. 
So yeah, Ashby, uh, director of Shampoo, um, the editor for Norman Jewison's uh, The Russians Are Coming in the Heat of the Night. That's actually, he got uh, a Academy Award for Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the, I think he only got four nominations, uh, two for editor, two for director, and that was the only thing that he won for. Uh, he, really? Yeah. Um, he was a child of uh, some Mormon parents. Uh, they divorced during the Great Depression, and he moved uh-huh. to Portland, Oregon. What? Where his mom opened the Ashby's ice cream counter. What? Yeah. He then uh, returned to live. He went to back to Utah to live with his father, but his father committed suicide when he was 10, which is interesting when you think about Harold Ahmad. Um, and so, yeah, from the, uh, his first movie was the landlord, if I remember right, which, uh, Norman Jewison got him, uh, kind of hooked up to, to direct. Okay. By the time, uh, this movie came around, um, well, in, in many ways, shampoo has like three creators on it. And here's a quote from Lee Grant. Uh, Warren treated him meaning Ashby Warren treated him like any other member of the crew but Hal had to stay around it was like his bargain with the double because it was going to be a big hit mm-hmm. and wow. yeah a lot of this movie is is Beatty behind it it's Beatty's people mm-hmm. uh, he overruled Ashby on who he wanted for cinematographer uh, mm-hmm. I believe he wanted um Wexel, Wexler, uh, Wexler, Haskell. yes, Virginia uh, Wolf, yeah, 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 and Kovacs ended up uh, being worry, uh, Beatty's person. Same thing with um, uh, set design and costuming. Like mm-hmm. all, like all the the production designer was Beatty's person instead of uh, who Ashby wanted. And Ashby, I mean, he's known for having great soundtracks, right? Uh, well, I, I think so. I mean, especially when you think about like Harold and Maude, right? Like he is somebody who is definitely into the music and the music of the soundtrack. And uh, basically Warren in the studio, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Beatty in the studio, Warren Beatty in the studio, um, nixed it. Like mixed all of his most of his musical choices, and that's where we end up. Which surprisingly, you have like two Beatles songs in Shampoo, but like, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of what he wanted got cut. Wow. So, uh, so um, Ashby was kind of a a studio director in the old Hollywood style, where it was very much pr- producer driven. The producer just happened to be the star as well. And this is not like new Hollywood cinema where the the, the uh, baby boomers are coming of age and they're, they're the auteurs of the film. This sounds more like a produ- producer-driven film. Like it, the old it, studio system. It was. I mean, I'd say that Ashby had the sentiments uh, and the... Uh, the vibe, <laughs> the groovy mm-hmm. feelings of new cinema. Uh, I mean, of the, of the new people coming in, yeah. but was working like Norman Jewison through kind of the studio style of system, mm-hmm. uh, which gets like, so the, the third person. So I said there were three people kind of in this film, right. Uh, directing this film. 
uh, definitely the the person with maybe the greatest pull is Beatty, followed by Ashby, followed by Townsend. Town. I'm sorry. Town. Did I say Townsend? Yeah. Shit. Uh, of course, Jack will not edit that out. Um, R- Robert Town. <laughs> not Robert uh, Townsend. <laughs> different different timeline. I think Robert Townsend was probably about what ten years old when this came out. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, you know the the universe where I'm from. Uh, <laughs> I have enough sleep at night that uh, recording late at night to fit both of our schedules uh, has me say the right thing every time. So yeah, uh, Robert Town, um, who uh, Beatty had asked to like do touch ups and punch ups on um, Bonnie and Clyde, and I think something else that he was on probably Perlex. Yeah, it was Perlex View. Um and had his own script for shampoo, and Beatty mm. had a script for shampoo, and mm. how being how Ashby being the director that he was, uh, basically spent had them spend ten days just fleshing out and bringing together this uh the best parts of both scripts, I guess, and his own small touches uh, mm. to create the film that we're going to talk about today. Shampoo. Oof. Okay. Uh, so th- this was an interesting time for uh, Beatty Beatty. Because, uh, you know, he did obviously did Bonnie and Clyde, and that was like, the, he was like a, a star then, right? Um, and then um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller came out a few years after that. Uh, Parallax View, obviously one of my favorite movies. Um, and then we get into this this weird period where he really slows down and becomes like uh, a really hands-on producer with the movies he started appearing in. Um, his filmography gets um, further and further apart, particularly at the, from this period on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's also writing a lot. It seems like writing a lot more and we'll start directing. So I mean, you'll have heaven can wait and reds, which will mm-hmm. uh, take, take a long long period and so this film itself takes what like seven years to develop from when he starts writing it um when Beatty starts writing it uh to come out which is why it takes place in 1968 in a film that comes out in 1975 so so it was it takes place in 68 because that's when he started writing it or is is there something deeper thematically about it taking place honestly uh, i don't think that there I think that there is for Ashby. I think there mm-hmm. might be for Town. Uh, I'm not so sure that there is for Beatty, even though Beatty was uh, helping out with uh, Robert Kennedy's uh, campaign whenever he, whenever, of course, the he here being Kennedy uh, mm-hmm. was killed. And so, I mean, that definitely affected him. But I don't think it, that he started, I think he saw a little dissolution that happened in 68. Um, and he was trying to capture that maybe as he's writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think that he continued to, I think his version had more modern things in it, mm-hmm. uh, and wasn't necessarily set in 68. And so they tried to bring it back, but I, I, I'm, I'm working a little bit off of memory here from yeah. the very meager, uh, commentary that they have on the Criterion collection. Really? Yeah, it's surprisingly uh, sparse. It's also why, I mean, one of many reasons I don't own Dick Tracy 
<laughs> it's because all, there's also special features on that disc release either. Hmm. That's the only uh, reason you don't own Dick That's the only only reason. <laughs> I, uh, I, I go really next to my movie Dick. Uh, <laughs> um, I because I, I, I always thought one of the things I liked about Shampoo is is when it takes place and what the story is, and um, really just thinking about thematically what the movie is trying to say by placing the story of a guy who's running around trying to get money. He's lying to this guy. Uh, he's sleeping with women because he likes it. Um, and then it, it all kind of crumbles for him. And, and we know 1968 was kind of the end of the whole, um, the whole hippie um, revolution. It, it lasted like a year really. Um, and as soon as Nixon was elected, that was kind of the, the outro of that whole scene. Um, so it's interesting to think that maybe there was not a whole lot going on with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm drawing a little bit from uh, a book on Hal Ashby called being Hal Ashby. Uh, I guess being, a, that's a playoff of being there um, uh-huh. where uh, there's a moment where Beatty talks about uh, that. Okay. Beatty admitted to an interviewer the Nixon Agnew scenes get much larger laughs than I had intended because of what had happened since. I really didn't plan it that way. And so maybe there's a like uh, uh, a dissolution with the election, but the full effect of the film t- is because you have Watergate happening right around the time that it's, it's being released, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the larger um context of, of the film uh than just the election of nixon at the time so that you have the so irony of the distance of and all that television stuff uh, seems to be how ashby's touch like uh-huh. he always has something going on in the background and the the what he contributed uh more than to like the story and the, the film outside of the script um was is having all these uh choice clips that he found to be playing at that moment in the scene to as like a, as a contradiction to what you're seeing going on in the foreground in the dialogue. So it's one of those movies that if it hadn't been made specifically when it was made by the people who made it, um, that's the only reason it is what it is. Like if it had been made by a different director a year earlier or later, um, we might have had if, something. I think I think if it came out like in '68 or '69, it would not have been successful. Uh, I mean, one of the things that is like a landmark for the film, I think, for the movie-going audience, is cocksucker, or uh, really? I, I want to suck your cock, or whatever. Uh, yeah, like it, that language definitely wasn't normally heard, heard in films, and it was very rare for a woman to say it. And so it was like this liberating or this kind of shocking, titillating uh, thing to happen in in the film. Uh, but listening to the commentary and like uh, it uh, did, I think they originally, uh, I can't remember where the first screening was, but it was somewhere maybe like in Orange County and it did very well. And they showed it in LA and it, maybe I get that backwards and it did extremely well. But basically, um, it from my since uh from the commentary and what i've read the audience was all picking up on different things mm-hmm. uh and enjoying different movies in in many ways and watching this 
So it's not just that it like it was playing to all the different seats in the theater. Uh, it did seem like there was a lot you could just pull from the movie as you would as you would want to, which is how it became how Ashby's most successful financially successful movie of any of his films. Hmm. Uh, so I think it was I think it was just at the right time, uh, the right milieu. And what's fascinating is that it would basically this film is the end of that type of film, right? Because the same year, months later, you have Jaws. Jaws, right. And so somehow uh, the other film that Hashpi was attached to, One Flew is a Cuckoo's Nest, uh, it, it slipped in. It, uh, but this would be the third highest grossing film of that year. That's impressive for a movie that's basically a, a grown-up movie that's rated R um, to make that much money. Yeah, I mean, it's not like One for the Cuckoo's Nest has the happiest of endings, uh, but this well, has... This a, one doesn't either. It, that's what I was about it, to say, is this this has a kind of a grim ending as well. Yeah. Um, very, uh, I don't know if it's influential on my early writing, but um, a, a lot about his character and kind of how it ends up with a guy just his whole life is the one chance he had, or he thought he had, he kind of fucked up, even though he might have success with uh, Jack Warden's money. Um, and just well, feeling I mean, kind of just having like a hot, sexy guy who's kind of bummed out because the girl's leaving and he's watching her leave at the end. Spoilers. It um, has a really early mid twenties feel to it. It's interesting. I find it interesting that Beatty is maybe almost 10 years too old to be playing this character, which I think is good um, because it makes his desperation uh, that more desperate. Yeah, that he might lose the one thing that he has, which is his looks or his sex appeal. Yeah, it's it's, it's like he's doing this maybe five but, five years too late. I mean, you're a big townie, though, because you also get really inspired both by this film and Tough Guys Don't Dance. Uh-huh. When he helped yeah. punch that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've talked a lot about this script. Let me see if I can give uh, give it in 60 seconds. Oh, I, I have one question it? before you do this. I have uh, the 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 thing about John Peters being the inspiration for Beatty's character. John Peters, who was a hairstylist of the stars, and he was Barbara Streisand's pet for a uh-huh. while. Um, My spouse brought up the same thing as we were watching it, and mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't addressed in the commentary or my How Ashby book. So I'm I'm gonna. I don't know if it matters. It was just a time period where a hairstylist could be that. Maybe that's all it was. I can't imagine one being that now. And I haven't seen the Adam Sandler movie where he's a hairstylist. Uh, So maybe we'll have to circle back. Or Licorice Pizza where Bradley Cooper plays. Oh, yeah. John Peters. Yeah. Yeah. And then John Peters went on to make what billions of dollars off of producing Batman. Well, all right, hit me with your sixty seconds, Thomas. You want you want shampoo in sixty seconds? I want so you to put, marketing copy, right? I want you to put the plot in your hair <laughs> and let it sit for sixty seconds, and, and then, then repeat. Uh, gonna, and then no, I'm then then I'm going to rinse it out. Ah, maybe with some conditioner. All right, <clears throat> shampoo. Warren Beatty plays George Rundy in a graphic and revealing depiction of a little-known demographic suppressed and made shameful in the Nixon-Agnew era of America. 
what may be known as the ultimate credit risk, the straight hairdresser. (laughs) In the course of about a day on election eve 1968, George has sex with multiple women and not for money. His girlfriend, Jill, played by Goldie Hawn, can't decide whether to leave George for the opportunity to shoot a commercial in Japan, unaware that George failed to get a bank loan and will be pursuing a local rich dude named Lester Karp for a loan, as well as Lester's wife, Felicia, played by Lee Grant. We open the movie with them fucking. His daughter, Lorna, played by 17-year-old Carrie Fisher, whom he balls minutes before laying pipe again to... Lee Grant in the room next door in the middle of the day in a subtle tug-of-war between the women and his mistress, Jackie, played by Julie Christie, and with whom George had once been in a relationship. In the end, Nixon is elected, Moneybags Lester and his girlfriend Jill, uh, played by Goldie Hawn, find George giving good dick to Jackie at a party, and George realizes he's adrift and wants to marry Jackie, only to arrive too late. She's running away with Lester, who may likely invest in George's hopes for a salon. And do you know what the prime mortgage rate was then? Six and three quarters. <laughs> wow, indeed. We won't be going back to those old days anymore. <laughs> uh, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, Lee Grant. We, we need to mention that we did an episode on Lee Grant. We, uh, as an actor in Columbo. And uh, What Sex Am I, the documentary she did. And we had originally talked about shampoo, but then, again, I was thinking we might do a BD season or an Ashby season, and we ended up just combining the two for this episode. But she's she's great and won, won the Oscar for yeah. very little screen time here. It's almost like a, we're sorry for the, um, you know, for the communist blackballing that we gave you for those decade and a half. Here's an Oscar. Yeah, and she almost walked off this set. Uh, I think we might have mentioned it in the Lee Grant episode. If not, uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely in her uh, autobiography that we read for it. Um, but yeah, this is her third of four nominations and her only win. Um, and uh, I can't remember what Beatty was taking exception to. It was some type of reaction that she was having, like uh, some, uh, some one of her depictions. And yeah. She told Hal, like, hey, I, this is what I'm going to do, and I guess it, it's not okay. And so she w- was walking off, and then Beatty reconsidered. And yeah, it was so, something about her having a reaction be- as a woman coming from being a woman, and uh, Beatty didn't know what he was talking about, being a man. That was the gist of the anecdote, I believe. Yeah. And, and Beatty came to his senses, and uh, she's great here. Uh, man, her cheekbones, pretty fantastic. Yeah, and she has really amazing eye work. Yeah. From the drops whenever she's first like uh talking to her husband to uh in in the restaurant. Uh and I mean and her reaction shots during the blowjob scene in the restaurant uh help help sell everything, I think. Yeah. Um yeah, I'm a big, big Lee Grant fan. Um so his, the thesis statement of this movie is, I don't fuck anyone for money. I fuck for fun. Um, it's almost like he says that as much as Leonardo DiCaprio says, I like money in uh, Killer of the Flowers Moon. Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, but uh, is he saying that because he means it? Or is he saying it because he's afraid it's not true? I, huh. Well, I would say, I mean, the context of him saying that is his ex, 
whom he just found out is uh, sleeping with Lester, who definitely isn't as attractive as um, Warren Beatty. Yeah. Uh, And so it does seem like she is exclusively doing it for money, which also equates to security in a a lot of places in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the reasons he's insecure around Goldie Hawn's character as well. Uh, so I w- but I, he doesn't seem to be girlfriending. Did I use that right? The the verb on there, boyfriending? No, girlfriend. Uh, uh, Jill Goldie Hawn's character for money at all? No. Uh, and so I would say that, yeah, it does seem like he he definitely does it. He also doesn't seem to have a lot of resources. <laughs> uh, and it's not like he fucks Lester. <laughs> so I would yeah. say, and, and it doesn't also, nor is he like having sex with the owner of the salon. So I would say that I, I do think that he generally believes that, that he generally yeah. believes that he's having uh, an enjoyable time and that money is something that shouldn't uh, be a part of that transact uh, of that conversation transaction or uh connection with another person yeah i'm i'm surprised of the two movies we're talking about that the other one won more oscars than this one um but jack warden um as as lester uh was nominated it it might be one of my favorite jack warden performances outside of probably the verdict um he is really funny uh there is a moment where he is talking to his wife and um, he intimates that Warren Beatty, because he's a hairdresser, is gay. And he does a little uh, flip of his hand, like a fey flip. Um, and then he almost immediately grabs his arm like he heard it. And uh, comedically, it's so hard to pull that off without overdoing it. Um, I just loved every scene he was in. Warden is great. I don't know what you think of his performance, but. No, I I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, he walks this line between commanding, sinister, and pathetic, which is yeah. really hard to pull off. Yeah, yeah, uh, great performance. And one thing, BD, in most of these movies I've been watching this past week and a half, um, he is such a the the camera really likes him, but he doesn't do a whole lot. And he, he feels really generous as an actor and director of letting other people um, get the best stuff. And um, that's pretty apparent here as well. I just had to look it up. I guess Jack, because I, I was like, Jack Warden, you said the verdict. You meant 12 Angry Men. No, he's in both. Yeah. Now he plays um, kind of Paul Newman's uh, mentor. He's great. He plays the Burgess Meredith to Paul Newman's Rocky in The Verdict. Yeah, uh, I I don't have a favorite uh, warden, um, mm-hmm. but I do appreciate his because uh, yeah, I think he could also come off as schmarmy or like uh, sleazy, and like it's, it's, everything just seems kind of like matter of fact to him, but not in a way that's completely distant. Um, like there's some amount of motion, and like also when he's like. Uh, I guess packing up the dogs and uh, at the very end uh, tending to uh, his mistress uh, uh, Julie Christie's character Jackie Uh, where he's like uh, it it does seem like he's 
he has something genuine there, like how much that's lust or whatever it might be. Like he does, uh, it's as lost as of- lost. Yeah. As lost as George is in this luster is as well, but Lester's just older and established. And there, I mean, Beatty's character essentially fucks what his, his wife, daughter and mistress in the same day. Yeah. Um, and, and Warden pretty much knows this at the end. But I don't know if he knows so, about his daughter. Probably not the daughter, but he's he's such a pragmatist. He's like he thinks he can make money off him, so he's still going to get in business with him. Um, it's the, I think it's the best written role in the movie, and I think Warden's great in it. Gets a lot to play with, anyway. I'm a big fan of uh, Goldie Hawn in this movie as well. I mean, I, I really enjoy the scene in the in the barbershop where she's coming uh, to uh, get George and explain to him that she needs to make a decision. And just his flusteredness uh, mm-hmm. is being flustered to try and like work and talk to her at the same time um, and just not registering anything because he's uh, <laughs> uh, like uh, what's a guy bimbo? A himbo? A gimbo? Himbo? A himbo. himbo. Yeah, he's a himbo. he's a himbo. Yeah, he's a himbo. Uh mm-hmm. is is just some great timing. It, it just reminds me like, yeah, she got her start kind of in, with laughing and other pieces of uh of just great comedy. Yeah, it this almost feels like a template that the the Safety brothers would take and then just like start shaking the camera and make it twice as anxiety inducing. We have a really compressed period of time and you have a guy who is having to progress through all these different other people to try and make some money. And he's, he's uh, talking I, to one person and go ahead. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, because he, the, the stakes seem like impossibly low for him. Like he doesn't know what the stakes are and he has no real investment in his own life. I, I, uh, I think the movie almost meanders. Maybe if we cut him on his motorcycle out more, like a Jar Jar Banks thing for episode one, <laughs> like it'd be a better film. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't. There's a, there's a tautness that I would hope for in this film that's not there. I I like meandering movies. Maybe I'm I'm just uh, uh I would I prefer this over a taut, almost thriller atmosphere of of heightened anxiety. Um, but. I guess the comedy doesn't quite hit for me. Um, I, I, I don't think th- I wouldn't consider this a comedy. I don't know why I think it's they call a comedy. It, well, I mean, I mean, only like in the Shakespearean sense, to my mind, is it a comedy of like, oh, they're going to get buried at the end and then they don't. Um, yeah. But it's also maybe because it has so much sex in it. I think that the interesting thing is um, the sex is. Uh, I, I think treated pretty well. Like it's not um, lurid. Mm-hmm. Um, the most uh, uncomfortable of the sex scenes that could have been, uh, we don't, we don't see at all. And that's with the 17 year old daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just intimated uh, by her walking out of the shower, uh, fully clothed. Um, and so the, the movie isn't, uh, scintillating or in the sense of like uh trying to be a it's not a sex comedy right uh 
in the same way that an 80s sex comedy, if I said those words together, you have an image in your head of like guys looking through peepholes into the sh- a women's locker and love like lewd rapey stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film instead like uh, has women who want men. Like he, uh, he's almost never the aggressor, is he? Aside from maybe no. in the bath, uh, the pool house, whatever that is, the boathouse. Yeah, that, that's what makes it a little bit of a fantasy. I mean, I don't know if, if Aquanet is the original Viagra, but um, that, that's a lot in one day. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I need a recharge. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> no matter how, how much the Goderia is telling me, you got to keep spreading me. I, I don't know if, if, uh, if I, if I'd be able to perform. Um, I, I did go out and buy a bottle of Aquanet and try and huff it after this movie, see if it would work. <laughs> and I, I just passed out. <laughs> Gummo style with a paper bag. I had a ditch. <laughs> I don't think I could regularly recommend this film to anybody. Maybe as like a historical piece. Um, maybe if you've watched Being There, Coming Home, maybe The Landlord, I'll find out soon. Uh, I, think, I think- And wanted to continue it on. I, I don't think this. Um, I think it's successful at, at what what it what it is. I don't think it it necessarily climbs the echelon of all time great meaningful movies. But as a an important piece of of studio cinema, particularly in the the great era of the seventies, I think I think it's kind of essential because uh, as as much as you might be disappointed in what it is, given the fact that this was made with one of the biggest stars in the world at the time, Warren Beatty. And it, it came out through a studio. And given its content, um, it's it's remarkable that this was a popular film people went out and saw. I mean, it's an artifact. And I mean, Ghost was a popular film that people went out and saw. I don't know if I could recommend people watching Ghost. Yeah, but but Ghost American was, Beauty was a product won uh, Best Picture in '99, right? But I don't know if I could recommend I'm, people watch. I'm talking that. of of the era of of studios just letting people make the movies they wanted to make, and and the the audiences going out and seeing them ghost is a product of a pure pure studio system um armageddon is the same way but um as an artifact of the 70s that that great era of the 70s that people always say was the the best ever and i think it was i think this is an important part of it well i think it has some Um, fun 70s touches like uh so there's a dinner scene um you have the mistress Beatty's character, Lester, his wife there, along with uh, George Beatty's character's uh, girlfriend, Cody Hahn, who's there with a different date. Um, and Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. <laughs> uh, no, it's not him. But that actor, uh, I guess, according to uh, the Criterion Collection, often played Beatty-esque roles. And so mm-hmm. having him there was a little bit like having uh, like store brand Warren Beatty with Warren Brady with Warren Beatty. Um, so uh, all of a sudden that's okay. In that scene, all of a sudden the Senator starts uh, reciting some type of maybe uh, first nations like story 
or maybe something that he was related to elsewhere. Hello, Garden Gate. Hello, Garden Gate. <laughs> Garden Gate. Hello. And then uh, he starts chanting. And then uh, the uh, room's evacuated for reasons that we don't know. Like Secret Service shows up and we don't know what happens. And that's like a, for me, that's an interesting like 70s style uh, move or maneuver in, in a plot. It's just to have something semi-random happen and never try to explain it and just to shift where you're at and to move things around. It, it does. It sounds like something that happened to one of the people behind the script. And they thought it was a great thing to include to move from point A to point B. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's great. Cause so that for that reason, yeah, I think it's a great piece of, of 70s cinema, um, like in capture and capturing that aesthetic or that that idea of things um the subtleness like it's a film that you should be watching more than once probably because if you want to pick up on some of the background details that is something that ashby's kind of known for uh the the salon owner whenever he calls Beatty to the side talking to him about coffee and he didn't even charge for it at the very beginning uh mm-hmm. there is a picture of his son uh who will die at the very end of the film in a way that's and again, like in a seventies way mentioned, uh, kind of briefly in passing. And then how, how Warren Beatty's character, George keeps his job. Who fucking knows? He's never in that. He's in that salon, like for seconds and then he's gone again. And it, it does, uh, go to the fact that Warren Beatty is not a method actor. Cause uh, there's no way that guy studied hairdressing did, unless you're going to tell me he did. Uh, if if uh, Dustin Hoffman, his buddy Hoffman, was playing this role, Rambo, you know he he would have spent three months as a hairstylist, and he would have it down. I did not believe for a minute Beatty has ever <laughs> cut anybody's hair. Although, given how bad Julie Christie's hair looked after he was done with it, I'm I'm not so sure. What if he's like, you look like a prostitute or something? Let me do your hair, and then she looks at it, and then I'm like, I don't know. If that is good or, or worse, I don't know if it's better or worse. Or the exactly time. the same. Okay, because doesn't whenever she meets uh, Lee Grant's character uh, when they run into each other at the party at the restaurant, it looks a little bit like their hair is cut the same. Am I yeah. wrong about that? Okay, no. Uh, no. And so I just don't know if that is the best haircut at the time. Or like everybody's getting a Rachel or something. Um, <laughs> or if it's uh, he just wants his if he, he was like, oh, he's so dumb. He doesn't realize he's replicating the hair that he just did for his other uh, sexual partner. I, mm-hmm. um, I anyway, it's 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 kind of amusing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't. I think this movie is fairly um, I, I like it and I, I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it again. I think it's pretty mid-level, but I think as part of a piece of the great 70s movie puzzle, um, okay. I think it's essential on that. And I I am fascinated by Warren Beatty and how little <laughs> he does and how little his acting varies from the movies I've watched the last few weeks, other than um, Ishtar, which I think he's fucking great in. Yeah. Um, he's kind of exactly the same, even as Dick Trace. He is the same as Dick Tracy as he is as uh, Johnny Shampoo in Shampoo. Um, and close. I mean, I, I haven't watched all of Reds, but a little bit as the guy from Portland uh, in Reds. Uh-huh. Like, 
And only thing that's different about Bullworth is that he, <laughs> he has like a midlife crisis and he's older. <laughs> uh, well, we'll talk about it. I, I don't know if I'm going to talk about it all other than saying I watched Town and Country, the movie that was so bad and so ruinous to so many people that he didn't make another movie for 14 years. I watched it last week. And again, he plays the exact same character. They replay plot points from Shampoo that Buck Henry was um, hired to do rewrites for Town and Country. It is one of the all-time great bad movies, and I recommend everybody to to watch it if you're a lover of, of movies made by really talented people for a whole bunch of money that are just fucking terrible. Um, and if you want to watch a movie that's not terrible but has a terrible reputation, un, unfairly, watch Ishtar. Ishtar, I watched it. Uh, that was the first Beatty I watched when we, we were going to do this and uh, I hadn't seen it before. And um, I, I don't like the ending, but um, it was really funny. I was yeah. surprised how it's probably one of my favorite Beatty performances because he's dumb and he plays dumb really well. well. And he's not just dumb. He's dumb with uh, a great supporting equally built actor. Like him and Hoffman at the same, you have to have both of those people in there, I think, for that movie to work. Mm -hmm. You have to have the pretty one, which is Hoffman, <laughs> according to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Beatty both being kind of peas in a pod dummies yeah. uh, to, to, for it to work. Uh, it's weird. The movie I thought of uh, watching Ichtar was, um, was Bad Boys, where they had Martin Lawrence. Um, and Will Smith, and they kind of flopped the roles that you would expect them to play. Um, and how well it worked for two of those movies anyway. Uh, but Ishtar is great. Yeah. Unfairly maligned. Unfairly maligned. Uh, yeah. I, so to go back to Shampoo, I would agree with you that it's mid. That if you do need that one more uh, stamp on your 70s card this probably is a good contribution to that. I mean, I would put you know, parallax view and a lot of other things ahead of it, but mm -hmm. it does fill, it does fill in a little bit of a gap there. I don't plan on ever watching it again. Um, having watched it twice, I think is, is sufficient. I, I agree, but I, I think I err on the positive side of the experience. And if you are getting that punch card, you know what you win at the end, <laughs> uh, a, a cold gray morning where you're staring off, and you've lost everything. So <laughs> get those punch cards filled, kids. Man, 70s cinema. That's <laughs> the fucking greatest. <laughs> uh, well, what's weird about this film is that it does like have a hint of the 80s in there. Just with that, with the bank loan and the idea of monetizing yourself. And like that, there's a, there's like, a, I, I feel like a cusp, uh, or just right on the edge of, uh, uh, kind of like that moment in Boogie Nights where you, mm. you shift over to 1980. <laughs> like the darkness is coming. Like this is bad. <laughs> this is weird, but like something else is going to happen. Yeah. And uh, I am fascinated by how Beatty in a way kind of revisits this uh, era of culture in, in Bullworth in particular, um, you know, 20, 25 years later. Uh, I think he's still playing with a lot of the themes from the era of shampoo. 
Yeah, well, to Beatty's mind, according to the interviews that he did, uh, one of the interviews that's on the Criterion Collection, um, the, the whole reason, like his idea of what shampoo is as a movie, is a movie about exposing hypocrisy. And so you have this hypocrisy about money, and you have this hypocrisy about sex. And the movie is trying to show you those hypocrisies. Hmm. Uh, both he and Town had written a uh, a coda for this film, like a, a scene that would take place like in 75. And uh, fortunately, how Ashby uh, was able to like delay some stuff or like do some type of like passive aggressive finagling so that they never would add it to it. Instead, he could end it like he ends Harold Ahmad up on a high cliff somewhere looking <laughs> out in the distance. Love it. Such a great fucking ending. Uh, was the ending they had um, Beatty standing before a mirror all strung out on coke naked? What What's that from? Uh, either Boogie Nights or Raging Bull. Oh, okay. <laughs> Classic. Oh, he's not he's not naked in Raging Bull, but same difference. Bright shining star is what he said to himself. <laughs> ah, okay. That was great. Shampoo. Go see it, kids. You'll love it. Hmm. Don't get it in your eyes. It'll sting. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it? We're going to take a break? Yeah, uh, let's take a break, and I guess when we come back, uh, maybe we'll have some quizzes or games. Yeah, and uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, a few other movies in Beatty's filmography before we talk about Dick Tracy. Can we do that? Well, you know, it's our final episode of season 10. I do say what the fuck we want. We just stretch this motherfucker out. I don't have to sleep tonight. I, I'm waking up in about six hours. Me too. Let's do it. All right. Tracy, Tracy, Tracy. Is that Big Boy? Tracy. I thought you were no longer part of the Atlanta-based rap group I cannot think of right now. Migos? No. Fuck. Outcast? Yes. (laughs) That's pretty good. I got in two guesses, man. That shows my... Bonafides, my bona fides when it comes to rap music. As everybody listening is probably not surprised. <laughs> um, all right. Well, wait, wait. Were you going to give us some Bullworth flows for the, the remainder of the episode? I'm going to do the rest of it in rhyme, dude. <laughs> uh, no. So, um, Bullworth, I, I do think thematically feels like an extension of some of the stuff in shampoo. Um, and that, that was so interesting watching them pretty much back to back, but I watched Bullworth first. Um, and Bullworth is such a weird movie. It, it doesn't seem like one that could have been made any other time in the history of the world. Other than yeah. the two minutes, other than the two minutes where the studio head was like, okay, I'll green like this. Like if they had asked him five minutes later, after he had some like a uh, salad stuck in his teeth or some coke stuck in his nose, he would have said no. I mean, I feel um, like the same is true of Freddie got fingered. Um, <laughs> yeah, but or, the, or, or did like Larry being in a bunch of films somehow? Like I, I think he actually had more than a second because Dennis Larry's like in what Demolition Man and The Wrath and a few <laughs> other things. Uh huh. 
so, you know, uh, or Andrew Dice uh, Clay being in a few films. Um, yeah, it, but it really is like this narrow, like six month window or something <laughs> of like politics of like post. Because I feel like um, with BLM recently, like uh, mm-hmm. like I, going back and watching movies from the nineties, like early nineties, there was like a there was like a, a like a change happening in the in the early nineties uh, in American culture and awareness um, that seems to like skip for like thirty years. Is my math there right? Ten, yeah, for like sure. like 15, uh, 15, uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, and this is like right after that. <laughs> this is like the backlash Clinton era shit uh, that um, uh, he, he's in the midst of this weird milieu where, yeah, I I, I have no idea how Bullworth was <laughs> like made any money. Was greenlit? Made any money? Well, anybody thought it was a good idea, but I think in that in the moments that they were shooting it. Like it was probably a, a decent, smart script for somebody. I I don't know. Uh-huh. It it is also that was at the time where uh, Clinton um, and the baby boomers had essentially won. Neoliberalism uh, had had conquered everything, and we were post racial. Everybody was going to get a piece of the pie. Um, and Bullworth coming along and, and pretty much just poking its finger into that during that peak um, is so weird because I, I was not expecting that type of movie coming out in that period. Like if it came out um, during the Bush administration, it makes sense, right? The George uh, W. Bush administration. But during the Clinton administration, it was kind of like, um, we got all we wanted and it still sucks. And um, you can see his depression and wanting to kill himself. <laughs> well, I think the movie isn't like, I, I don't think they put a, a hang on a bright enough lantern on it, but I think he wants to kill himself because of his, he made bad choices in like, I don't know, soy futures or something. And then <laughs> A black hat hacker came around and did something. <laughs> I was gonna no. say, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it, I think he has like bad investments is was what's going on, and then he's gonna kill himself for the money, for the insurance money, and he has the insurance lobby there, and it's all part of like his darkness. And I, you know what, I don't want to talk about Bullworth. It is a, it is not. It's almost an unwatchable movie. It it's is not. It's not completely cringe, but it's like your. It's like your. It, it it is it is one of the most watchable for the wrong reasons uh i would put town and country which came out what a year after that year or two after that or was made right after it um they are they're both so terrible but so compelling um i did not not enjoy bullworth i thought it was fascinating i loved it even though it's terrible i don't care it's great (laughs) <laughs> Terrible movies can be great, Thomas. Yeah, you know it's it's not it's almost it's not quite a hate watch. No, it's it, it is it's just yeah, it really is fascinating in a way that it's like, a what the fuck watch. Yeah, I love it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. You're just scratching your head the entire time, wondering <laughs> why they what they think they're accomplishing, but also <laughs> I don't know why they think it would like why, how this plays outside of like a weird Hollywood. Uh, yeah. The level of reality it's supposed to be. Um, 
Okay. Um, do you want me to do a, a, my season 10 quiz before we start talking Dick Tracy? Wait a minute. Wait. Wait. I'm having a thought. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm, ha- I'm going to have a thought. It's coming. It's coming. It's gone. Wow. Michael Lerner as Lipnick from Barton Fink. <laughs> That's pretty good. I want to put those two performances side by side. Oh, that'd be they're interesting. Al- they're almost the same. Uh, uh, one half, yeah. One definitely wasn't in makeup for as long. <laughs> the movie should have been. No, uh-huh. no, he's great. I love him. Um, yeah. Let's let's uh, let's see your quiz. Okay, uh, I'm going to start off with uh, a recent one, Warren Beatty. Uh, Warren wait, Beatty. Wait, should people call in, or is it just for me? No, no, it's just for you. Okay. Warren Beatty famously said, "What a." Shirley MacLaine, she's kind of nuts. B, I've seen Nicholson fuck, and you, Danny Elfman, are no Jack Nicholson. (laughs) C, heaven can wait, but I've got a raging boner. Or D, La La Land. He didn't... Oh, okay. (laughs) I think he said all of those things. Uh, okay, okay. And then we'll at the right time. <laughs> all right. So um, for all of season 10, uh, the best science fiction slash horror film. A, The Postman. It's post-apocalyptic. Uh, B, Dawn of the Dead. Classic. C, Star Trek First Contact. Ooh. Or D, Madonna acting. <laughs> um, which was uh. the most... Who... Who was the most fondly remembered late actor in our season 10 as voted by our listener? A, Paul Newman in The Color of Money, got an Oscar. Uh, B, Ray Liotta in Cocaine Bear. C, Peter Fonda in The Maldonado Miracle. Or D, the giant penis AB came out of in Cremaster 3. (laughs) Oh, uh... Wait, so the giant penis died? <laughs> Sadly enough, yeah. Oh, boy. It was made out of wax, and it went outside in the Utah sun and melted. <laughs> um, okay, best performance by a beloved supporting actor. A, David Keith in Men at Work. I think we both liked him in that, right? Yeah. Uh, B, John Goodman in both True Stories and Sea of Love. Uh, Anne Ramsey, classically, in Throw Mama from the Train. Or D, and Margaret's boobs in magic. <laughs> or they should be in the Louvre, right? So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, best film about the end of the world: A. Wet Hot American Summer, the you know the the uh-huh. meteor. Uh, B. Postman again. C. Dawn of the Dead. D. Repo Man or E. Tough Guys Don't Dance. <laughs> Um, okay, and uh, for best cinematography or editing that we saw, uh, Under the Cherry Moon, Michael Bauhaus's photography, terrible movie, beautiful. Uh-huh. Color of Money, also Michael Bauhaus. He was on a roll. Uh, Dick Tracy by the great Vittorio Storaro. Uh, Untouchables, shot by Stephen Burnham. Burnham oh, or yeah. uh, Richard, Richard Marks, the editor for Dick Tracy, for cutting around almost all of Madonna's dialogue. <laughs> Wow, I didn't realize we were going to pile on Madonna. I'm going to have to defend her. Madge can take it. She knows I love her. 
Um, most heartwarming moment in all of season 10. Uh, numerous moments in What Sex Am I? Uh, as the people we are following grapple with identity in a time where uh, gender uh, was taboo. Uh, B, Ruman Blades and Mayor Winningham's tender romance coming mm. together in the Maldonado mm-hmm. miracle. Uh, C, the slap fight in Postman. Or D, the bee coming out of the tip of a penis in Three Master Three. I, I'm really surprised you focused on that versus the uh, clear corset and vaginal penetration of Three Master. Uh, okay, uh, and my last one: um, which film would be the most improved with Fats the Dummy from Magic replacing the lead? A Ryan O'Neill in Tough Guys Can't Dance. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Stop, right? <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> oh, I'm all trying right. to imagine that now. Like, why does he have shaving cream on his on his <laughs> on the mirror? Oh, God. Like, oh no! Oh, gosh! Oh no! <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Robert oh, Town wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> that was his contribution. He punched that uh-huh. up. Yep. Yep. Oh. When he dies, uh, his tombstone will say Chinatown and Tough Guys. <laughs> In parentheses, rewrite. Oh, um, wow. Are we ready to talk about the film that nobody wanted in 1990, Dick Tracy? Um, yeah, the last film ever to use the sodium vapor process, often referred to as yellow screen, mostly used in Disney films of the 1950s and 1960s. Really? Uh, last you one. You can see it at almost, almost, yeah, last one ever. Huh. Um, that's about the most interesting thing about this movie. No. Um, <laughs> well, so 1990, you have Minute Work and Night of the Living Dead. So we hadn't talked about the, the remake. So we hadn't yeah. talked about any other films prior to this season that took place in 1990, and now we have three. Oh, wait, no, that's not true. We did Postcards from the Edge and Wild at Heart. Yay. Oh, and White Hunter, Black Heart, and The Rookie. Yeah. Jesus Christ. 1990 was uh, packed with something. <laughs> <laughs> Wild times at the theaters. Uh, mm-hmm. One movie that we didn't do in 1990 uh rob reiner a director uh or uh actor who he didn't cover this season had a mm-hmm. had a big film that year that stars somebody in this film it was adapted by william gold william goldman yeah um that's right and originally uh, they they'd offered Warren, the role that would originally to go to james james can yeah to warren Beatty. And also in this film, Dustin Hoffman. And also in this film, Al Pacino. Insane. Yeah, it's like the Irishman without Warren Beatty. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, Uh, yeah. Misery. Misery was also this year. Misery is a good movie. I rewatched it last year. And as uh, a big studio thriller, it totally holds up. It's great. Uh, probably William Goldman's really best uh, last big time screenplay. And I think he was years. just coming out. I think it was just coming out of uh, publishing that book, Jail, with with Misery, if I remember right. Uh, like it was his return. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, it's a good uh, one. And also, like, uh, apparently Stephen King and other people didn't think it was adaptable. I haven't read the book, but they were like, there's no way to make this into a film. Uh, Rob Reiner. God damn, that guy went on a run. Uh, we're not talking about Rob Reiner. No, we, we, we're talking about uh, Beatty's 1990 film. So Dick help, Tracy. Okay, help me out. Uh, there was Batman, and then they said, you know, what we need is Dick Tracy. Um, because he, yeah, he wasn't the first person to uh be assigned, like to there wasn't the studio's first pick for director, if I remember right. No, and um, Chester Gould, the creator of Dick Tracy, um, and who was the primary writer and artist for decades, um, had a lot to do with the film not getting made before it was made in 19, uh, 1990 because. Uh, earlier versions, he wanted too much control and wanted too much money. A creator wanting money for something being made off him? What a crazy idea. Alan um, Moore, then, shut the fuck up. Then once he died, his family is like, hey, sure, man. <laughs> we want to move out of this double wide. So give us some of that Hollywood cash. <laughs> did you um, did you follow any of the comics? Have you read any of the comics? I was surprised to learn that Dick Tracy goes to space for a while. Um, it has like a, a stepdaughter with antennae and magnetic hands and uh, flying cars. Um, and then in the late 60s, he was a bit of a Nixon law and order type against the hippies. Um, yeah, they did. There was some crazy shit in the Dick Tracy comic strip. I did a, a deep dive last okay. night. Um, and then in the late 70s, um, after Gould stopped doing Gould. Keep thinking uh-huh. of Elliot Gould. Um, Max Allen Collins started writing it. Um, he's a fairly famous, famous in some circles, uh, mystery writer and uh, writer of cartoon strips and comic books and novels. Yeah, and um, he he hated this script. And some of the work he did after the movie was was dialogue dubbed in because he wrote the the adaptation. The tie-in novel. Oh, he did. Um, the writing of this is just crazy of how many versions it went through and how Warren Beatty himself bought the rights to it in 83 um, after an aborted attempt to make uh, a film written by one of the writers of Superman and Superman 2, Tom Mankiewicz, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, they eventually went to a script written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., who are kind of like David Kep if David Kep were two people. In the <laughs> oh, the Top Gun people? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, terrible yeah. writers, but yeah. work really well in the studio system. Uh, you could see a lot of their fingerprints over the slightest of plots for this movie. Um, Bo Goldman, uh, two-time Oscar winner, multiple Oscar nominee, uh, did an uncredited rewrite with Beatty. Um, and they went through WGA arbitration and uh, lost. So Epps and Cash get their names as the only writers for Dick Tracy. Um, residuals, that might be good. But if you watch this movie, maybe not. Um, and yeah, there, you, you probably know that there were lots of different actors and directors who they were discussing for this. Uh, Clint Eastwood was one. Um, Harrison Ford, obviously. As, as a uh, at playing uh-huh. Um, Dick yeah. Tracy, not as the director of it, I don't think. And it kind of this the the background of this movie and the different directors, uh, like John Landis was probably the primary one. Oh, that'd been um, good. 
or better. <laughs> it would have been, but he was he was uh, caught up in the Twilight Zone trial at the time. Oh, sure. Uh, which is the main reason he didn't do it. Uh, but kind of like Dick Cheney being the head of finding a vice presidential candidate for George W. Bush, Warren Beatty, the producer and owner of the rights and wanting to play Dick Tracy, ended up uh, directing it himself. Um, that kind of stuff happens sometimes in Hollywood. Um, Sean Young famously was cast as Tess Trueheart and dropped out or was fired and later claimed that it was because she wouldn't bone Warren Beatty. I don't know how you feel about that. Madonna. Uh, I'm glad that she did it. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? What kind of rhetorical question is that, kid? Well, I mean, it's just... Obviously, it's, she should have. No. No, 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 no. I didn't mean it that way. Oh. I, I, just, I just meant that it's it's one of those things. I don't know how it makes you feel about Beatty. I don't know how, how you feel about Sean Young. Mm. Um, she seems like a lovely lady. Um, yeah. She, she's, she very much speaks for her, her own mind. And I think that's uh, a dangerous thing in Hollywood. Um, yeah, she's probably, I probably, I believe her. Um, probably the worst creative decision on a whole, whole list of creative decisions that I'm not a big fan of is uh, Danny Elfman <laughs> doing the score. They had, um, didn't they have three soundtracks to this? They did. Yeah. And it sounds exactly like Batman. It is a. It has nothing to do with what you're seeing on screen. It, it literally sounds like he put in a tape of the Batman soundtrack, and then he got paid a boat, butt ton of money for it. Um, I'm not a big Danny Elfman fan. Recently, Danny Elfman has been accused of all kinds of sordid things, and it turns out he has a kink where he likes laying in bed naked next to a fully clothed woman. I forget what the kink is called. But the second oh, I heard that, marriage. I never went. <laughs> uh, I wish I had a drum to, but I'm <laughs> um, anyway, uh, good Lord. Vittorio Storar, one of the craziest great cinematographers of the era who only has like 14 or 15 movies to his credit. Um, literally goes nuts with this movie and the production design. Um, it kind of fried my eyeballs a little bit. I don't know about you. I think that he should have his three previous Academy Awards stripped from him. <laughs> How Ashby got an uh, award uh, for editing, uh, they didn't put his name on it. And so he uh -huh. gave it to Jack Nicholson, whenever Jack Nicholson didn't win for uh, the film that he, he collaborated with Hal Ashby on. And I, I, yeah, I think that they should have the names on those not etch. I think they should just be erasable so that, uh, yeah, you, you get it taken away whenever you make this film. Yeah. And this is the era of after Batman. I mean, you had, um, people thought anything from the 1930s that you kind of quasi update. Uh, you had like the phantom, the shadow. Um, and then this movie, um, really made you rethink, if if Tim Burton's Batman was a good idea or not, um, but it, it, then you have Schumacher's like Batman, and you're like, yes, it definitely was. <laughs> We're not going to get into the Schumacher. <laughs> I'm not going to let you bait me to that, Thomas. Um, this is this feels like a movie where I know Cash and Epp said we read every Dick Tracy comic strip from 1933 to 1963 before we wrote this script. Um, but it really feels like people who think it's silly. And, and I think 
the difference between these these adaptations that work and don't work is the people making them when they work really love the material. Um, and I'm shocked to hear that Warren Beatty grew up loving Dick Tracy comic strip and that this was the movie version he made of it. Um, it feels like people who are really dismissive of the form they are adapting. Okay. And, well, um, let's, yeah, let's, um, maybe we save that a little bit for the reaction because, okay. uh, I think we've covered, he, he went to space. He had groovy Grove as his sidekick. <laughs> um, did, did you watch any of the Dick Tracy specials that Beatty's done since to keep the rights? The weird one with, um, is it? No, I, you sent it to me. I was, I was yeah. at work when I got that and yeah. I started watching it and I said, I'm going to get caught and I'm going to get fired. I can't drive this Thomas. bus with all these children on it while <laughs> watching this video. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's terrible. And, but I mean, he's in, I, I guess the only thing that would, he delivers an interview to uh, with Leonard Melton. Uh, mm-hmm. As what year was Dick that? Tra- that was 2010. Really? And, and he pretends that he is Dick Tracy the entire time. And he talks about how uh, they made a movie about him in the 90s. And he's like, yeah, that guy looks a lot like me. But what? it's just, it's so weird. It's so, it's, it's unwatchably bland and weird and unnecessary, but it was enough to have him maintain the rights, which is what the, the whole reason for doing it was. So um, at one point, Scorsese was, um, and, and Beatty were talking about Scorsese possibly directing a version. This was earlier in the, the 80s. Um, and he wanted to take it into, you know, it would be a modern style uh, comic strip adaptation, which was grittier, <clears throat> darker. I mean, it's about a cop and about a bunch of freaks running a city. Actually, Scorsese sounds like a pretty good director for that. Um, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the ideas they had for the look of this film. Yeah. Um, Do you have um, a 60 second? Is, there enough, is I, there enough plot to couple together for 60 seconds? Um, let me take a drink and I uh, will see. Hold on. Are you going to do this? Oh, wait, while you're drinking, will fats come in and do it? <laughs> hey, you schmucks. <laughs> um, um, oh, okay. Hang on. Hang on. Wait, you I, like Waldorf, right? <laughs> uh, do you like the four primary colors? Uh, what, what, which ones are those? The, um, Blue, I think there were three. Red, yellow, green. Green is a mixture of two of those. <laughs> <laughs> so the 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 plot is uh, Dick Tracy is uh, wears yellow. Is in a town full of freaks. Uh, the only light in the town apparently is green light, um, and that's not the stoplights. And there is a bad guy played by Al Pacino, and a mall played by Madonna, and Tess Trueheart and an orphan and um, the mob guy's trying to take over the rackets and Dick Tracy's trying to stop them. And there's a montage of them, Dick Tracy shooting guns and attacking people. And it looks exactly like a gum commercial for some reason. Gum or gum? Um, gum, G-U-M. It looks like it's shot like a gum commercial. Like it could be an Orbit <laughs> gum commercial. What, are you ta- what kind of commercials are you watching that have gum? What do you, do you get targeted ads for gum? I'm saying the bright colors in the oh, style. Got it. I'm, I'm not sorry. talking about the gun. I'm not talking about the shooting. 
Got it. Um, I'm with you now. The, the filmmaking style. Um, and I would tell you how it ended, but I fell asleep with 10 minutes left and I didn't feel bothered to um, watch the end. Oh, you jacked it. I did. <laughs> this might be the first time I jacked a movie. Oh my goodness. Like father, like son. Right? Um, or like son, like father. Uh, and I, I, so I also, I watched this over three days because I would start watching it and I go like, how much is, how much is left in this? And I'd pause it. And I go like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. How is there an hour and 40 minutes left? Um, so it was, it was a slog. Uh, so, uh, first viewing. I saw it when it came out in 1990 and this is my second viewing. Did you watch it? Did you project it or did you pay money to no. go see it? Uh, I paid money to go see it. Uh, this is my first time actually watching it. I'd watch the making of on television. That's weird. Well, why? Because it was television. It was just there in my house and a beam got beamed in. Uh, they did a lot of those. I remember watching one for Brian Singer's X-Men as well, as late as like 90, what, nine? As they late would... as like 10, 10 o'clock because it can't be on the family hour for Brian Singer's involved. <laughs> the uh, Jack return his email. No, don't. No, do. No, don't. Uh, <laughs> uh Man, we have to bleep out if we tell that story, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll just leave it out. Uh, um, but no, there were often like these hour long, maybe if I remember right, like sp- television specials yeah. about the making of films as like, a promo great. for them. And I remember-, I remember watching the Dick Tracy one and thinking, I don't need to see that. But I watched, mm-hmm. I think, the whole thing. And? The making of? I don't yeah, remember, it, man. That, it- was, that was 30 years ago. So the um, so for Storaro and uh, Beatty, I mean Storaro shot Reds, which is a great fucking looking movie. Ishtar, which is a gorgeous movie. Yeah, Ishtar might look too good for a comedy. I always think that comedies don't look don't look good enough as far as cinematography goes. Um, Ishtar might look so good that it might confuse people, and that might be part of the problem. I, I could see that because especially if you look at the other comedies at the time, right? Uh-huh. Like it, yeah. they're they're usually a lower budget. Uh, he did the Ishtar, Ishtar is a fucking gorgeous movie. He yeah. did um, Dick Tracy, obviously, and then Bullworth. A bunch of Coppola movies and um, a Giallo, right? The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Yeah, and he worked with uh, Bertolucci uh, three or four times. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, one of the best. And you know, everybody, everybody has. Has that skeleton in the closet, and this this might be his. Okay, so I let's let's <laughs> the plot um, seems like a it actually doesn't seem all that bad. I mean, it seems like um, kind of paint by numbers. It, it, it's it's generic. It's it, yeah. it's really lazy. Is what it's, it feels like. It's really lazy. Um, but if we just take the plot itself, it's paint by numbers. It's a, it's a structure. It's a backbone. It's something that somebody could latch on to as an audience member and go, okay, there's a mysterious person who's, we don't know what side they're on. They have a blank face. Uh, this per- there's a power play. There's, uh, you know, the, the commission of, uh, you know, the same thing that you see, like, what is it? Season three of the wire where they all sit down around the table. Uh, mm-hmm. like, okay. There's the all the normal things that you would expect in a kind of crime 
movie. I okay, so that I don't think is necessarily bad. When you start to get the dialogue on top of that, and then you start to try and figure out what's the crime, like Dick Tracy shoots people and kills people in this film with like a glee of like a pre-code era like gangster. <laughs> but then he has to catch Al Pacino, and Al Pacino is worried about killing Tracy and people blaming it on him. Um, the the motivations do seem like a, a four panel comic strip where you would explain their motivation, um, like on Monday, and then by Friday in that comic strip they would be fighting. Um, so maybe they got that part right. I don't know. So the dialogue is wild. Where like <laughs> you like walnuts. Right? I'm sorry, Dick Tracy's like you like walnuts, right? Is that <laughs> Al Pacino's <laughs> character, big boy? Lots of people do. They're good for the liver. <laughs> Like what? What the fuck are you talking about? Why are you talking about walnuts? Um, so it's like for kids, maybe I don't really know. The crime is usually like gambling. There's like a hint of prostitution, maybe, uh, and then like a shakedown racket. But the crime is just kind of like generic crime. Uh, Warren, like you have uh, Dick Tracy being told, like, "Oh, you you you're violating people's constitutional rights." And he's like, "Okay, but I'll be right back." <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so that's a little confusing you have the uh but so you have the dial so you have like a backbone of a story that might make sense then you have like weird dialogue then you have like i don't know uh odd uh, mm, like you have an odd temperature to those things like the lovers you could be pulling like how dark it's going to be uh-huh. for, the, for the horrors I always go. I always go to Joe Pesci's and and Moonwalkers. Bugs and drugs. Bugs and drugs. Like the like. What's your plan here? You're gonna infest the world with drugs and bugs? Okay, it's a Michael Jackson film. Who cares? Uh, But in this film, like, I'm not too sure. Like the violence is the the lovers are kind of all over the place on what the violence is going Mm -hmm. to be. The the sex is all over the place. It's like Jessica. it, It makes sense with like Jessica Rabbit because she's a cartoon. Yeah. But Madonna, don't say it. It's a real person. <laughs> and, and so the, the sex the sex there is is strange. Like it's it's uh odd for like wait, is this for the the, the straight men in the audience? The uh-huh. teenage boys? No, you you are you are totally hitting the nail on the head of why this movie is so terrible. Okay. So, so you have no idea who is it for? Who is this movie for? Well, what about the Sondheim score? <laughs> Who is that for? <laughs> I mean, hey, Tim Tim Burton got Prince. Who do we got? We got Sondheim. Sondheim comes strolling in. Yeah, I'm gonna Prince this shit up. Uh, Al Pacino's gonna play one of my songs on a boombox. I'm gonna he's gonna tear up a museum. <laughs> a little song, a little dance. Uh, no, so I, this this feels like a movie made by uh, people that were thinking they were making a kids movie. It was originally supposed to be Disney, but the second they saw uh, Madonna in a see through dress and uh, sticking her ass in Tracy's face on a desk, they were like, "Oh, we're going to move this over to to Touchstone." And um, the fact that when they started, it was supposed to be a kids film, and there are parts of it where it's like, "Hey, it's like Tracy 
if you could see him as like a tough cop played like, like, like a Robert Mitchum type that kind of softens towards the kid and maybe starts thinking of a, a domestic life with Tess Trueheart, you could see like the parameters of what could be a kid's movie with all the bright colors and freakish characters, but nothing about the execution is something I would think any kid would want to watch ever. Yeah. I don't know. Like, like Bullworth, there's like a six month, like (laughs) spread somewhere between like nine and 10, maybe. (laughs) Uh, I don't know who this. Okay. So we have that. And then we have the primary colors, which are jarring. Uh, it, It is an interesting looking film. Um, it is. I so as as somebody who went to art school to trade as a cartoonist, uh, there are many painted backgrounds using that um, that system I talked about earlier, the yellow screening, um, where they use like single point perspective, like in a comic strip. Yeah. Um, and every time they would cut to it, I would go, "That, well, that looks kind of cool." And um, then it would cut to a scene of people talking, and Warren Beatty stammering as Madonna tried to kiss him. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck this movie is for. Well, there's all okay. So there's two parts <laughs> that we haven't really touched on. Um, the, I'm going to leave the big, one, biggest one for me at the end. Uh, there's times where, yeah, along with the uh, like that opening scene where they're fighting in the shed, where he follows the kid, and the kid's like being uh, the orphan kid is uh, named the kid. Uh, is being like abused by this guy and Dick Tracy's followed him and beats up the guy and like knocks like the house is moving, the shed's moving back and forth and it has that great mm-hmm. perspective, but they, they fuck with the speed. Like they over crank it. So mm-hmm. like, uh, and they do that like twice in the film during fight scenes. Uh, and it just, it's, it's cartoonish. But it's kind of like left like that that that's gone at different parts. Like after that, it, it takes a while for it to ever show up again. And so yeah. you have like montages and you have uh other and you have more montages. There were a lot of montages in this movie. There were a lot of montages. Here's the thing why I probably didn't watch it in ninety and why I never I, I you know what I did try and watch this film about three years ago and I turned it off immediately. Uh for this reason. The makeup, like I, I don't understand. It's like, uh, I, I, you know, if I say his name one more time after this, he will appear. So let's not make whatever I do. I can't say Brian Singer's name again. Ah! I thought it was <laughs> Schumacher, but he no no. So one of the things, uh, and like that, uh, our making of, uh, I would watch on television for X Men. He was talking about like, hey, we didn't want to put him in the yellow suits. It looked ridiculous, right? Like the we didn't want to put him in the uh the outfits that you would expect for the X-Men circa late 80s, 90s. Yeah. It looks yeah. ridiculous. You can't do it. We had to change like what the uni- things look like because things look different on screen than they do on print. And we're hoping that people are going to accept that and like it better for it. And that just kind of like changes where things go, right? Like uh, when you have Captain America in the MCU, he has like kind of painted on wings uh, on his helmet, right? He doesn't have like mm-hmm. wings that come off of it, uh, like Hermes sandals or something. Because um, it, what it looks like on a comic book strip 
is going to be very different than what it looks like on screen. Why do they make these people look so good? It's like Garbage Pail Kids level of like grotesqueness. Oh, that's one of my notes that the grotesquerie, grotesque, I can't pronounce it, of, of these characters seems like it's pitched towards Garbage Pail Kid fans, which is very niche. Oh, uh, Mark demographic. <laughs> but um, I don't see think the kids, the boys who love Garbage Pail Kids are going to go see Dick Tracy and go like, har, har, har. Yeah. And then sit around for 10 minutes of uh, Madonna half naked and looking like a robot, acting like a robot. Like there was an appeal to me because I would have been 10 at the time uh, of like, oh, so they have a shtick. Right, I, I probably didn't use the word shtick at the time. I, my, uh, but I was like, oh, they have like a thing. It's like uh-huh. He Man, right? That guy does that thing. His action uh-huh. figure does that thing, and so and the McDonald's cups and the constant advertisement for this film. Uh, I was like, oh, I could kind of understand like they have a thing, but what's their thing? Like, so mumbles does he mumbles? Wait, why would Prune I care face? about that? What does prune face do? Is that like a, a face thing or a sitting on a toilet thing? Uh, maybe he keeps his face in water for too long. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just didn't, like, I was like, oh, okay, they have a thing, but I don't care about the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's Dick Tracy's thing? Like, I didn't quite, I never, he has a watch? That That's a radio? that why like what i don't can can we talk a a little bit this movie's terrible um about like the cast that Beatty was able to get you know holy um, shit he was able to get aside pachit well this is this is weird because last week we talked about um sea of love being pachino's comeback after you know self-exile for five years and this movie came out the same year as godfather three it was part of his big comeback. It was like, you have the, the sexy leading man of sea of love. You got comedy Pacino. And then you got a classic callback to his most famous role in Godfather three. Mandy Patinkin, Seymour Cassell. You got Charles Durning, William Forsythe, Dustin Hoffman, um, Dick Van Dyke for fuck's sake, Uh who uh, broke his shoulder in a shot that's still in the movie. Um, Paul Servino, James Caan, Henry Silva, um, and it, it goes on. Estelle Parsons, amazing cast <laughs> for this movie, which speaks to Beatty's Beatty's power in 1990, where he was like a bona fide Hollywood legend at that point, and he could get these people to sit in a makeup chair for six hours before talking about walnuts. Oh fuck this movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a great abuse of power. <laughs> it feels like a, it feels like a vanity project. Like it should have just been like he should just watch it. This should have never been released. He should have just watch it like in his private theater, uh completely naked next to plenty of clothed women. No, that sounded creepy. <laughs> it's Danny Elfman. <laughs> um who did did he kidnap Bridget Fonda? Because the second they hooked up, Bridget Fonda disappeared. It's like Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates. I know they live next to each other. I know there's a tunnel between their houses. And there's some kind of weird keeping Fonda and Cates captive. Has to be. 
Anyway, that's our new podcast, The Good, The Pod, and The Conspiracy, uh, coming next season. Yeah, Truth Social. <laughs> Follow us on Telegraph. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I guess the other thing is, it like, uh, if you take, like, the worst elements of Sin City in that perspective, like you were talking about uh-huh. earlier, it is this, like, they use it in this film. What what do you mean? Like the uh the force perspective in the sin, the single point, like it, it feels, yeah. in which I, I you know, Ang Lee's Hulk. I, I need to go back and watch it. Uh, but I bet it feels better than this. Like people are still trying to figure out, I guess, where to draw the line between the comic book and the movie. Uh huh. And I think this takes some pretty bold swings. I guess I appreciate it for that. Um. Well, I mean, what I think about, but I would, I would, I would, the Tank Girl any day. The the movies that work are the movies where the people who made them have a passion for it because they remember how it made them feel when they first experienced it. Um, I don't think Warren Beatty, when he was a kid reading Dick Tracy, was going back to that. He was he's trying to make something that I don't know what it's like some Frankenstein monster of a movie. Um, but it's not really, it doesn't feel like he's tapping into something like this well of appreciation he has for comic strips of the, of the 1930s, the way that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, their love of serials comes through in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, it's almost like he's playing it towards what he thinks people want. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck he was thinking. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it seems like. I mean, I guess to go back to it, like the aesthetic and other pieces, he was trying to stay too true to it. So it'd be, I'm trying to think of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, if it was just serials and some of them were missing and they were like released with gaps between, I, I just don't know. I think, well, it, you're I, think like, um... I think, I think a comic book movie was a very hard nut to crack. Right. And yeah. I think you do things like Howard the Duck, which was unsuccessful, but, um, it doesn't try and be a comic book movie. It just is the plot of a comic book or you do dark man, which is great, but is original. And, mm-hmm. uh, you don't try and force it into the frame of, of a comic book. Hmm. And I think it's why like Ang Lee's Hulk, uh, got dinged a bit. Was that I mean, aside from the CGI and other pieces of it is that it tried to look, it, it it was trying to remind you that it was a comic book, but at the same time, it had like this big dramatic story. I I'm not I'm not sure, but I think yeah that, that, that I, that's a different season. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> egging with oh, a lady. Ang- a- <gasps> All right, we got a follow up for uh, Aronofsky, I guess. That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I think this. I, I'm sure I love Beatty and how weird and how undifferent his performances are and how he works with like a lot of the same people. Um, we talk about Robert town, Bo Goldman, Buck Henry, a lot. Um, a lot of the same, uh, cinematographers, production designers, and he's always kind of the same. Um, I'm, I'm, re- he's one of the most fascinating people I think of his era in Hollywood. Cause I can't quite figure him out. Is he a deeper thinker than I'm giving him credit for? Or 
is he as surface as his characters in some of his films might lead us to believe? Yeah, I think that that, I mean, in interviews, he doesn't come off as extremely perceptive, just from mm-hmm. what I've seen. Um, but I wonder, I mean, but that's all, that could also be a persona, right? And, and so, oh, yeah, it's his public persona for sure. And so I don't know what he's like behind closed doors, and I don't know how persuasive he is or visionary he is in in meetings with people. Well, we, we know he's fairly persuasive when it comes to the ladies. Um, up to Annette Benning, he was probably the most famous ladies man of, of his generation, wasn't he? I mean, that's what shampoo plays off a little bit by having two of his exes in it, right? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And he, he doesn't cross the... I, I mean, by the time of Bullworth, he crosses what I call, what I think of as like the Clint Eastwood threshold, where like, you're like, oh no, you're you're far too old for that character or for that woman to like you. Like Halle Berry should not be interested in him in the least. No, uh, no. <laughs> I, yeah, there, uh, but I. It, well, you know, tell only, you, tell, only, tell what, you only like five, she's... only like five years earlier. I think Bullworth is ninety five. I, I could be wrong about that, but. Uh, it seems like only like half a decade earlier, it kind of makes sense that Madonna might uh, be attracted to him. I mean, but, only but, because we know in real life that they were together for over a year and he asked her to marry him at one point. And also he does like, he does look pretty good in a yellow trench coat and looks a lot better than uh, big boy Caprice. Yes. It's a total classic uh, dick move to make a movie and anybody famous around you, you just put in pounds of makeup and make them look like shit. <laughs> so no, no matter what guy is in this movie, they're like, yeah, I'll sign up. That sounds great. You're going to be in makeup too, right, Beatty? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to get the nose. Sure. Oh, we tried it in uh, pre-production. It didn't look good. So uh, I'm going to go without makeup or any prosthetics anyway. Did they actually try the uh, nose? Do you know? They did. Oh, they okay. did. I would love to see some photos of it, um, but you know, it didn't look good. Uh, Liam Neeson, uh, a younger Liam Neeson, would have made a, a great natural Warren Beatty with his uh, boxer's nose. A natural, sure. a natural Warren Beatty, or natural Dick Tracy. A natural Dick Tracy. Oh, got it. Okay, I think you said the other, uh, but I don't think Clint Eastwood would be that badly cast. Um, I, I think I mean, he'd be a little bit old. I think in old, he's a little too old an idea. I mean, that's unforgiven era, right? And I think actually one thing that Eastwood would bring to it uh, as the character um, is that at that time, Beatty was still uh, swinging single without any kids. It wasn't until Annette Benning that he started popping out kids in his, what, 50s. Um, Eastwood had had like, what, 15 or 16 kids by that point. Um and when he acted with kids, it was always really good. Uh, and maybe that's something that's missing from this movie is a genuine chemistry between um, the older guy and the, the orphan. What? I mean, I guess there's the movie Bronco Billy, but that was terrible. What? Uh, when did he act with? Oh, OK. No, oh, Honky Tonk he... Man. Oh, okay. Honky Tonk Man with his own son. That's a great fucking movie. Um, but also Eastwood has always had a good facility with with kids i think because he's had kids like a million of them but i also think that um, he would be funnier and warmer in this film than Beatty, which is strange to say 
he would be able to pull off the law and order stuff as kind of being in character, but also kind of funny. And then, uh, you know, I'm you're uh, yeah. Eastwood would have been pretty good in this. Yeah. Now that we're talking about it, it would have been a lot funnier. It, it would have, the comedy would have come off a lot better. It would have been better than city heat anyway. Or uh, BD at one point, BD at one point, I talked to the Coen brothers um, about working on this movie. I don't know how serious they got. Yeah, that would be um, fascinating, right? I wonder, I mean. This would have been very early Coen Brothers, like right after, what, Miller's Crossing? Yeah. Barton Fink era. And Barton Fink and Dick Tracy, they kind of overlap, which is weird because, like I said earlier, Al Pacino and uh, Michael Lerner's Lipnick, um, very similar. Um, Lerner doesn't go as over the top. I think he got an Oscar nomination. Um but their characters are both have a very similar cadence. Uh, it's very weird. When I first started watching, I was like, who the fuck is Al Pacino sound like? And it was, you know, Lipnick from Barton Fink. Weird. Whatever was in the air that actors of a certain age were getting, <laughs> it was creating that performance. Is there any, I'm trying to think of anything that is worth talking about in this film, other than what we've just mentioned. Uh, I like, I like Glenn Headley, RIP. Um, she was always uh, a really nice character actress. Um, I always, she's great in everything she was in. Uh, and this cast, uh, I don't know. It's weird. Like, is that James Caan? It's one of those movies where you're uh, like Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood meme, where you're pointing at it, um, where they're so buried in makeup. Uh, that takes a second to figure out who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean yeah, I mean, you usually could do it by the voice, but even that, for some reason, I couldn't, couldn't quite. I had to look up James Con. I know that's terrible, but yeah, this, this it, it's dumb. It's dumb. It made, some it, money. It, it made it probably made it, did it make its money back? Do you know? I'm sure it, it did. did. It did. Yeah, it was it was fairly successful. Um, Too big to fail. The, the Madonna and and Beatty relationship really was a big part of the publicity for the movie. Um, and it's what a lot of movies, you know, okay. Barbie, Barbie and Barbie land. Um, if they never left it, it would feel as oppressive as, as Dick Tracy. You mean just visually? Yeah. It's, it's only when they break out and they have a contrast that, that, um, the Barbie movie really breathes. And, um, Dick Tracy is what that would be like if they never left. That's my modern review of Dick Tracy. Well, uh, yeah, it's part of that era that we, I wonder if we'll ever see again, like what would be the resurgence of try, <laughs> trying to reinvent the superhero movie to be more like a comic strip. Uh, yeah. I don't really see the need. So if, when Beatty dies, the the rights will go to how does that work will uh, annette benning just like sell it the second he dies he's like he's like on his deathbed he's like annette don't 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 because he, he would stammer because it's very sexy uh-huh don't sell the dick tracy right and then he flats lines and then the second it's over she's on the phone <laughs> <laughs> but who's buying at that point? I mean, think it's just like the people. Own no, the, it, right? It's, it's the an Beatles IP at that moment. Yeah, it's an IP. 
an IP is is worth everything in Hollywood. And um, God bless Warren Beatty for making stupid videos to hold on to his rights. So no one makes another version of it until after he's dead. We've never seen a Blondie movie. Not the band, but the comic strip. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I have been waiting for someone to make an actual Dagwood sandwich on screen. Yeah. I think I'm going to watch the Flintstones movie this weekend. Just, uh, <laughs> and then watch Which the one? sequel. Both of them? <laughs> yeah. What, what, the other one has something, some joke about what, what's the title. It's like, uh, mm, so, something about rock, like, uh, Las Vegas or something. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, Viva Rock Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for remembering that. I ver- I feel so bad for your brain. It's it's got to be <laughs> rotting it. Like it's a cancer in your head to be able to remember the sequel to a giant tumor. <laughs> John, John Goodman as Fred Flintstone. Well, oh, none God. of the original cast is in the second one, which is one of the reasons I want to watch it. Oh wait, who is in the second one? I don't I do not recall, but I'm sure the Doctor Internet will tell us at some point. Okay. Kevin James. I don't know. So are we done with Dick Tracy? Are we ready to start to wind down season ten? Oof. I guess so. Uh can I do a can I do uh can I read a list of all the movies we've watched for season ten? Absolutely. Uh all thirty <sighs> movies, you said? Uh-huh. Yep. Uh yeah, go for it. All right. Daredevil, Gone Baby Gone, Wet Hot American Summer, Cocaine Bear, Untouchables, The Postman, Twins, Throw Mama from the Train, Men at Work, Repo Man, Pineapple Express, The Disaster Artist, uh, Ransom for a Dead Man, What Sex Am I, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, The Maldonado Miracle, Star Trek Four, Star Trek First Contact, Under the Cherry Moon, True Stories, Magic, Brighton Rock, Cremaster 3, Tough Guys Don't Dance, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, um, Sea of Love, The Color of Money, Shampoo, and Dick Tracy. So we started with a superhero movie. We ended with a superhero <laughs> movie. Or at least a comic book movie. Hey, that's funny how that turned out. Eagle-eared, li- <laughs> Eagle-eared listeners will uh, be able to hear that as I was going over that title of films, I was suppressing a cough so hard. I don't know how Anthony Hopkins did it in Magic. You know, the whole drinking and singing and whatever. No. Anyway, do do you have? I want to ask of all the films we watched, of a film you wouldn't have watched um, had we not done this. Is is there one that stands out? You're like, it's kind of a fun season because I wouldn't have watched that otherwise. And why is it the Postman? <laughs> I <laughs> I read the Postman for that episode, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm that was glad, a great episode. And I'm glad that I I uh, read that. Um, mm-hmm. I was surprised about 90s line dancing in The Postman, mm-hmm. along with a number of other things. <laughs> I was very – I think one of the, the big surprises or reveals for me this season uh, was Lee Grant because – Me too. While, I was going to say the same thing. Well, I wouldn't know her name. I would kind of know her face from things. And uh, it was great to learn her, unfortunately, tragic story of being blacklisted. I enjoyed what sex my amendments uh, tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was great to watch things that she would pop up in uh, since then, as I watch films from the sixties, seventies and eighties. Shampoo. Uh, yeah. That was a fun episode with Charlie and um, 
definitely that was the top of my list uh, of her story. Um, always a pleasure to watch a Columbo, especially an early Columbo, the the second pilot. Um, and then What Sex Am I, I think, was utterly fantastic, eye-opening. Um, yeah, it was it made to, it all worthwhile. Yeah, it was good to watch, revisit some films that I'll watch on a drop of a dime, like What Hot mm-hmm. American Summer and A Dawn of the Dead. Um, yeah, and then there, there was something like Brighton Rock, which um, I don't know if I'll ever watch again, but I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad I saw it, and it kind of is another puzzle piece to like the, the Richard Attenborough well, story. Well, you had watched Magic a lot, but it was my first time watching it, and I'm very glad that I did, and uh, would definitely recommend it to other people. I think that it was a matter of the cover of the movie misleading me to what the, the nature of the film would be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fun season. Yeah. Uh, and, there, and there's some things that I won't for, forgive people for, like Cream Master. <laughs> uh, you and I watched The Postman and talked about it at length, and uh, we deserve an award for that. We we do. Uh, it is. Uh, I, uh, it's a little <laughs> bit like watching Bullworth, though. But <laughs> sh- longer? <laughs> Wait, yeah. Anyway, you have some awards, don't you? Yeah, so uh, th- these are all for season 10. This is completely write-in, so we'll see how this goes. Maybe typically at the end of a season, we will rank the films. Uh, and all the guests, usually the three of us, uh, Jack included, will give our like top movies. Uh, and or even go through the whole film. I'll go like this case we probably wouldn't go through all 30 but right to our top 10 and bottom 10 yeah uh, but because these are so diverse it didn't make a lot of sense so we open this up to you our listener um and so we'll see how this goes i'm opening these as we talk so that's a little bit why a little bit of the prattle here uh and so i guess it, yeah if this doesn't work out maybe you uh jack and i can should have like a vote as well but we'll just see what they did so they, okay um okay so first category season 10's least convincing portrayal of a child or a teenager it goes to oh greg sisterio's mom and disaster artist who says yeah i just turned 14 when her son said he was 19 (laughs) so i guess that's a technicality there but uh yeah Uh so that that had one vote and that one um Oh, cutest alien. Oh, wait, wait. Cutest alien. Uh, is it the board queen in First Contact? No, no. Uh, it, it looks like Eddie Martin as Jose Maldonado in the Maldonado Miracle. <laughs> Way to go, young man. You were great. Uh, season 10's nicest buns. <laughs> so we just watched Shampoo. Let's see what. Nope, not shampoo. It is the burger at the barbecue that Paul Rudd eats uh, before the barbecue sauce scene with Elizabeth Banks. Yes. So that, of course, would be from What Hot American Summer. Oh, uh, season 10's best hair. We talked a lot about hair, I guess, during the... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Could, could, I, could I go over some my my favorite hair? Yeah. Of the season, yeah, but you, you okay. have a vote. You know, the voting's closed, and we okay. I'm, I'm a 
I'm a big fan of uh, Tom Cruise's Pompadour in uh, Color of Money. Um, I'm obviously a big fan of Fats's hair in uh, Magic. Um, uh, let's see, James Franco in Pineapple Express has great Ooh, hair. Yeah. Antonio Banderas in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Amazing hair. Great hair. Yeah. And um, the uh, CGI fur on Cocaine Bear. Oh, right. okay. Unfortunately, oh, it looks like What a Hot American Summer wins another one with Ken Marino's hair. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a nice fro. It All is. All right. Uh, oh, season 10's best remake of a beloved film. <laughs> okay. Goes to the disaster artist. <laughs> Oh, okay. Not Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Yeah. That, I don't think that counts for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, this looks like the best vessel with nuclear leak. Best vessel <laughs> with nuclear leak. Uh, Repo Man. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Repo Man. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so season 10's most distracting forehead. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Um... Let's see, Cocaine Bear, Robert De Niro and the Untouchables. Uh, again, the Borg Queen, lover. Uh-huh. Um, um the, the is it the penis that the bee comes out of in Cream Master 3? <laughs> Ooh, that's a foreskin. We're talking about forehead. <laughs> Which the winner is drumroll. Oh, Colin Farrell as Bullseye in Daredevil. <laughs> I almost forgot we watched that. <laughs> Uh, best detective work in any film of season 10. Uh, it's gotta be Peter Fonda in the modeling out of miracle. He's like, wait a second. That Jesus statue didn't bleed real blood, but it did. So he's disqualified. It's going to be, uh, Hermione, uh, Baddeley as Ida Arnold in Brighton beach. Ah, okay. Good. Brighton Rock. No. Yeah. Yeah. Not um, Anne Margaret's husband in Magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best performance by a musician. Um, you oh, I'm sorry. Watch, best uh, acting performance by a musician. I have to. You didn't watch The Color of Money, but Iggy Pop has a cameo where he loses <laughs> in pool and pays uh, Paul Newman some money. It's not that though. Oh, it's not? No, what is it? Who won? Uh, you know, I thought it was going to be Goldie Hawn because she released that solo album, the country solo album, uh, 1972. But it looks like, hey, it's Ruben Blades. Ah. Uh, he did know, everything. I, I, when I was looking at back the season, the Maldonado, Mir- Maldonado Miracle is probably the slightest movie we watched. But I think about Peter Fonda hitting the bag all the time. And <laughs> Reuben Blades and Mayor Winningham were really sweet. I think about it more than a lot of the other movies that I had seen a million times before. So I give that movie a lot of credit. True. And he also gets double entry because he was... Uh, Whoa. All... <laughs> uh, and Once Upon a Time in uh, Mexico. That's true. And uh, that three-hander... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, he. I guess it would have beat out what Tom Petty as well. 
uh, O'Shea Jackson as, as, as well as as Tom Petty, Tom Petty as Tom Petty. <laughs> and the Postman. Yeah, <laughs> don't I know? Are you famous? <laughs> I was, but now I run this dam. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about that fight scene at the end. It's, it's so dramatic. Ooh, oh, brother. hey, season 10's hottest couple. Ooh. Whew. It's, it's not the bee in the penis again, is it? <laughs> You're obsessed. Uh, you got a bee in your penis, don't you? It's like a, you can replace a bee in your bonnet. Uh no, it is actually Tom and Judy in the Night of the Living Dead remake. Because they catch on Maybe. fire inside the truck. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well done well done. Uh oh It's it's not it's not Prince and Kristen Scott Thomas, the cherry moon. Or Jerome Benton. Oh no, yeah, it would be Prince and the, his his roommate. Yeah, it? tricky. <laughs> yeah. Uh Bust edible recitation of Shakespeare. <laughs> that just has to go to the postman. <laughs> There's no. Oh. <laughs> uh, let me see. Oh, child buster by adoption. Um, Dick Tracy. Gone, baby, gone. Ah, uh, we had a few, didn't we? Yeah. Well, we had two. <laughs> <laughs> A couple. Yeah. Uh, oh, and the Maldonado to Miracle. Okay, maybe. I mean, his his dad was that's there. Three. But... Yeah, it's three. Okay. All right. Uh, Twins. No. Hey, best movie with a member of a Star Trek crew member. That doesn't make sense. Oh, okay. Uh, handwriting's a little weird here. The because it's also a write-in category. Uh, very strange. Best, wow. Yeah. Best movie we covered in season 10's cast member who is also a Star Trek crew member. And that goes to uh, Tracy Walter, who played what? two different Ferengis in what? Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. He played uh, a Ferengi called Chiron and one called Barrick in The Next Generation. Uh. So we definitely need to cover Tracy Walter at some point. Uh, we need to do a full season. I mean, we probably need multiple seasons. That guy's filmography is deep. Okay. Uh, me. Okay. I, hey, we're getting towards the end here. Best large mammal on cocaine. <gasps> um, 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 hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Lawrence Tierney in Tough Guys Don't Dance. Ooh, Wings Hauser in Tough Guys Don't Dance. Oh, so close. <laughs> Uh, Rider up was Harry Dean Stanton in Repo Man. Uh, Very good. Yeah. Best gimp mask. Um, Al Pacino and Dick Tracy. Ooh, uh, it's going to be the opposite end of things. It would be Ben Affleck and Daredevil. <gasps> oh, that's good. Yeah, best- there's actually isn't there isn't there somebody in an actual gimp mask in Gone Baby Gone? Or am I misremembering that? Uh, um, I with the pedos. Yeah, I uh, I'm gonna block that part out. Okay, I really like that movie. By the way, Gone Baby Gone. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, Casey Affleck's amazing in it. Um, 
as are most of the most of the actors yeah uh all right uh last two best makeup uh best makeup best makeup um um <laughs> is it the the penis the bee comes out of cream <laughs> master three <laughs> that's pretty good uh you know you you can't see cream master three anybody listening you're not going to get these jokes because you can't see it unless you go to a museum that's the only way uh you can i mean we we did it uh and yeah i mean you should you should as well i mean that's what museums are there for uh, is to see bees. it was it was probably the only time thomas jack and i wore tuxedos at the same time is when we went and saw that well and then when we were playing football that one time <laughs> right before my wedding yes right. <laughs> yes uh-huh uh oh best makeup would be what sucks am i Ah, okay. That's yeah. actually a good one. Yeah. And then best juvenile delinquent credited as kid. Um, um I'm not gonna use the Cream Master Three joke again. Um it's not Tom Cruise in the color of money, is it? Ooh. Uh that's a good guess. No, it looks like Aaron Holiday is the as the credited kid in Cocaine Bear. Oh, he, okay. He's the one of the three thugs who gets his ass kicked by um, uh, O'Shea Jackson. Hmm. And has the flashbacks and with his dead friends uh, going to California. Ice Cube Jr., that's right. Yeah. That was great. Was that the last one? Yeah, yeah. So thank you for writing in some of those categories. And, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, providing quality uh responses to all of them okay so i i have a few uh side hustle because we call this season side hustle i have a few side hustle questions for these uh we have 30 movies so presumably 15 directors slash writers Ooh, actually um, a few more than that because we prince and uh we doubled up yeah, yeah like the star trek and the yeah the frank right. yeah um of all of these people that we covered, which one coming out of the airport would you most like to have as your Uber slash Lyft driver home? Oh, boy. Wait, wait. So, okay, we have to stick with the creator, right? Like, I, I can't. Yeah. Okay. So we got Af- Affleck. Um, Banks, Elizabeth Banks. Costner, DeVito, Estevez, Franco, et cetera, et cetera. I have the list right in front of me. I don't know if you do. I don't have it right in front of me, but I have one of those terrible memories. So, okay. Uh, can oh, uh, can I have Richard Attenborough, but like at twenty five? Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna pick David Byrne. Ooh. True stories. Okay. Yeah, he's a good he's driver. Kinda, he's, <laughs> he's got that he's rubber like wheel. <laughs> he's kind of like a he's he's a, a local guide. Uh huh. Um, who? If you were going to find a perfect one-of-a-kind gift for your loved one on Etsy, um, which one of our participants in Season 10 do you think would have the best Etsy store to fulfill that order? I would be curious 
I mean, I guess just like general gifts, because I'm, I guess I'm taking this a little literally because it's uh, holiday season around us. I think Selma mm-hmm. Hayek would have a pretty great store. That's pretty good. Um, I'm going Matthew Barney in Cream Master 3 because it would have fucking diamonds all over it. <laughs> I got, uh, oh, Andrew, I, I got you a penis that has a diamond <laughs> bee coming out of it. And when you plug it in, yeah, a little bee comes out uh-huh. attached to a wire and it looks like it's coming in and out. It's great. Um, who amongst our season 10 participants would have the best stall in a uh, antique vintage mall. Tom Savini. So you like that? Okay, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you answered so quickly, and it was so perfect. I was like, "Oh yeah, totally." Okay, so um, antique vintage mall stall. Who has the best books? Like someone who has their their specialty is the uh. books. Who's the best read of, of all of these folks, alive or dead? You know, there's a certain elegance to Lee Grant. Ooh, I, I like that. I, yeah. I think that she would have uh, a large array of of quality mm-hmm. of quality books. Um, yeah, I would probably go Attenborough or Richard Price. I think the, rich, and, the and, Dicks. And I'm, I'm probably completely wrong about this. And I, you know, if I, if I was a larger person in the media or something, I would check what I'm about to say, but I, I, you know, I'm kind of uh, a small person, small fry. So I'm going to punch up and just say, I think Warren Beatty's library probably looks like, uh, you know, a, a bunch of cliff note books. <laughs> like Brad Pitt. In yeah, seven. exactly. <laughs> oh, sorry, Warren Beatty, if you're listening. I still love you, buddy. Yeah. No, he, <laughs> okay, did, no, he, um, didn't, he did like an immense amount of research for Red. Like went to the archives. And, and so he's, it's, it's probably un, 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 unfounded, but maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, yeah, James Franco, but he's canceled. Uh, so if anybody was going to knock on your door and say if you needed help mowing your yard, lawn, backyard, whatever. Which amongst our participants would be the most likely and the best at doing it? Who who would be the best person to mow my backyard? I don't have a backyard, huh? man. Okay, pretend you did. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm going to pretend like I have a, a backyard. Um, hmm. I mean, I yeah, shit. I mean, I think like Savini would be up to pranks. I think. Uh, I mean, some of them just seem so old. I'd, I'd be afraid. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna go with Estevez. You think <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the name? It's because he seems like the one that would do it the quickest and most efficiently. Do you think he would be like he would have his head down and he would be really focused on doing a good job? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Who who amongst our, our our participants would be the one most likely? to sell you um off-market drugs oh i mean it would seem like i'm gonna go alive or dead oh (laughs) off-market i mean i i think potentially ben affleck um i i could see him are you saying like um designer drugs like uh 
like cutting edge stuff or like um uh you know like uh alternative pharmaceuticals like tinctures and mm-hmm. okay no. <laughs> both okay okay who amongst us would be an influencer on social media selling um like protein drinks oh um, okay other kind of life lifestyle shit who would, is the most life lifestyle shit person alive or dead canceled or uncanceled Oh fuck! I don't know. Maybe that if you were if you were scrolling through the Instagram, and I saw and you it. Saw, like I, if I saw, like, oh well, if I saw Selma Hayek slinging shit, I wouldn't be surprised. And but okay. she doesn't need it. But still, like it, it, I, yeah, she's just. Glamorous. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go Norman Mailer just because <laughs> if I was scrolling. I would stop and go like, what the fuck is he selling? It's like a a plug-in car lighter. Do you what? wait? You think Norman Mailer would be like an Orson Welles? Uh, Probably, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. You, you plug it in, and then you plug in your car lighter. It goes right into your outlet. That way, you can have car car lighter lighting in your home. <laughs> I swear by this. Sometimes I'm sitting at home, sitting on the couch. I say, like, I feel like I want a cigarette, like I'm driving a car. I plug <laughs> it in. There you go. Yeah, Norman Mailer. I, I um, Yeah, you've, you've definitely sold me on this idea of Norman Mailer being an influencer in, <laughs> in my scroll. <laughs> Um, good. If they, if I've done one thing today, it's it's that. Um, okay. So, um, last one out of everybody we've covered, who would have the worst OnlyFans account? Worst. <laughs> I I don't know what that is. Ken, you have to explain that to me. What, what's only What's OnlyFans? Uh, only, you know what OnlyFans is. I, I mean, it, it definitely has to be our cream master guy, right? <laughs> Matthew Barney. Yeah. Like, guess what's underneath this? You'll have to come to the museum and pay two hundred thousand dollars to see. That would be every TikTok, right? Yeah, like it would. Uh, my my account would be drained. Yeah. Um. Yeah, who would I go with? Worst OnlyFans account. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to go again. Norman Mailer. <laughs> he would just be sitting there looking at the camera with a, a bottle of half empty empty liquor, <laughs> and he he would be talking about those some bitches. Yeah, and um, <laughs> that before. For my patrons, you know, you know what? I have, I have, I have more to say about this. Holy to my patrons, see, this is why I should not uh, uh, work off my memory because I want to change all my answers, all my answers, <laughs> and all the questions in the past. All of them are going to be one answer, and it's going to be Danny DeVito. <laughs> all right, uh, Jack, go back and edit Thomas saying da- Danny DeVito. You want to you clean Danny DeVito? Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to do it clean for you here, Jack, so you can do it. Danny DeVito. <laughs> okay, cut that and put it to every answer t- 
Thomas had to this questionnaire. Um, yeah, that was fun. <sighs> well, um, that about does it for season 10 and 2023. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember anything about this year. I think that the, uh, I think that this, this season has just wiped my memory. Uh huh. Um, yeah. I mean, we watched a lot of street. We did our four by four. And this was that uh, all this season? I mean, so that was all this calendar year with Streep yeah. and wow. Um, yeah, I have the River Wild as my first film I watched in this year for the podcast on my Letterboxd account, which you can go and follow me, Ken. Why Space Coral? What happens follow if people on, follow you on Letterboxd? More people get to see my stupid drunken stone takes on other movies than the ones we talk about on the podcast. Oh, so you're advertising yeah. an alternative to the podcast. Well, in addition to, it's like, the oh, supplemental. Plus. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. like, go watch Dick Tracy and get the hamburger with his face on it. Yes. Okay. Um, like Dick Tracy. Can I read my first uh, uh, sentence for my review of Dick Tracy? This is like a teaser. This is like my side hustle. I don't think we'll be able to stop you. <laughs> Um, Dick Tracy, 1990, a movie made by talented people who had no idea who they were making this movie for. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I that's guess if that's lead. tentalizing, if that's, if that's, yeah, that's a it's strong lead. Really? And I, I, I get, I get into some Madonna shit later on. It's fine. Um, I'm not that nice. Yeah, I guess. Thomas, what are we doing for season 11? Season 11, uh, 1 1. Uh, we are going to do Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky. Um, if you ever looked at a clock and it said 11 11, it's because it is all led up to our season 11 of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> it's all. Leading up to this, it's like the the Bible plus Nostradamus. Eleven, eleven, it's coming. Uh, Darren, on we're going to do the uh, temporal pincer movement where we go to the last one, first one, correct. And move toward the middle. Ah, I can't wait. Yeah, pie, pie and the whale. <laughs> it will be our first episode of season eleven. It's going to be great. It, that sounds like one of those uh, early aughts art film, like. Uh... Pie in the yeah, the pie of the well. It's probably about some uh, professor in a liberal arts school, some disenfranchised kid. They meet up. Uh, Noah Bumbach is the writer uh -huh. director. Jack wants to beat him up because of it. Yeah. So yeah, st uh, stick around. Uh, don't die. Um, and in 2024, you'll start to hear some takes on. One of the the creator of some of the best and worst films I've ever seen in theaters. Uh, he has a temporal pincer movement as a director. If you think about it, if you go from good to bad, he's got it all. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think he swings, uh, not like sexually, but like he swings big, like, uh, and yeah, sometimes that really whiffs, like it comes back and hits him in the head, knocks him out. It's it's like wearing a scarf in a very strong wind. Yeah. He is well known for wearing scarves. Uh, look it up on Google. The joke will be funnier. 
Thomas, thank you for um, being here and doing this. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate our listeners and Weird AI for the last. This is the last of this theme song, right? We're going to have a new one next season. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I think think that actually is going to happen. We've been teasing it for a while. Uh Uh-huh. For about six months. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you preemptively to Jack for editing this episode. Please. If this episode comes out in 2024, uh, listeners, you, 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 I, I'm going to Paris and I'm going to Homer Simpson strangle my son. Yeah. Uh, that's a visible that, that, that means That means it's a comedic way. It's oh. like, it's like, why you little? And he's like, ah, ah, ah. and it's funny. Yeah. And then the next day they're, they're all eating pancakes again. Okay. Or crepes. And I don't even have a pat. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? We should really come up with a way, maybe as we enter into the teens to end the show. Oh, like a send off. Yeah, or like something we always we always say, or I don't know. That's a good idea. Can we try a different one um, for the next season, and then uh, when one works, we'll just use it? No, no. If it, if it works, we're definitely no. going to abandon it. <laughs> All right, you want to try one right now? I, no, I'm just thinking. One question: When do we eat? When do we eat? All right. What do we um as well to quote Dustin Hoffman in um, <laughs> Dick Tracy uh, to you our listeners so yeah just put that on your record and slowly turn it at a different angle or speed and uh yeah be well and then